Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. We're in Acts chapter 2, and I've already prayed, so we will just go right into the message. I want to just point out to you once again uh, the passage that we're using basically as a jumping off point to bring some clarity to some subject matters that actually matter, whether you understand that or not, in chapter chapter 2, verses 38 And 39, Peter said, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And in that passage, as I pointed out, it is the basic key passage that many different groups will go to to make a point with regard to the rite or the act of baptism. Some will call it a sacrament. And it is something that is worthy of our time to understand because baptism is commanded to us and that we are expected to participate in it and to remember it. But we have also the responsibility to understand why we are baptized. And so we come again to that topic of baptism. And it is my plan today to clarify for you simply that word, baptism. Now, hopefully I can make this interesting. I think it's interesting. Um, I find that many times we simply don't know our words that the Bible uses, and we don't know what they mean, and as a result, we create confusion. If you didn't know, words simply are symbols, They're symbols about thoughts and ideas, and as such, they create in our mind certain images. The reader or the listener also takes those words and has the ability and sometimes a bad tendency to create a meaning that is not always what the speaker intends. And any of you who's ever said a word knows exactly how that goes. You say something to your wife or you say something to your husband, your parents or your children, and they react in a certain way that you never intended for them, but they heard and interpreted your words. And all of this is caused by mood, the mood that you're in, the inflection, and even the person's experience. So I have, by way of an example, in the uh, the Dutch world, words simply mean what they say. You take them at, uh, at face value. But let's pretend a Dutch man interacts with an English boss. And he's turned in a a major report, and the boss receives it and reads it and says that it is fine. But then it comes out later on, when it's too late to resolve anything, that the report was not fine at all. So what happened? Well, in the Dutch world, words are taken at their face value. The Dutch are very frank, and they say what they mean, and the people receive it as 
what was said. However, in the English culture, when you say it's fine, it actually means it's not fine. And if you didn't know that, then you're going to misinterpret what was being communicated. Words have meaning. And it is the responsibility, actually, of the hearer or the reader to figure out what is meant. Some of you who were with me in Cameroon that one time, you'll remember this event where we were tasked to play volleyball, of all things, with a bunch of the villagers. And it was quite the event, and it was building up. And there was a time when a man walked up to one of our, uh, the men on our team, and he, he pointed to his eye. Yeah, he's saying, he's like, I have, we have blood in our eye for you. And that, that resulted in some discussion by us. It's like, what does that mean? Uh, you know, I mean, is this, how serious do they take this game? And, and you start to wonder because those words may have some meaning we didn't know. Well, it basically means the same thing if we were to say with regard to a sporting event that we're going to kill you. Uh, obviously, we don't mean that literally, uh, but that is essentially what they were saying to us. Now, nothing can be more important than understanding words when it comes to doctrine and theology from the Bible. So what I want to do today is simply take that word baptism, and I want to show you how it's used in the New Testament, because it's used quite frequently, uh, relatively so, but it's used in a multitude of ways. And what I want to show you is that it doesn't always mean the Christian rite of baptism that you and I think of or of what a Lutheran thinks of, or what a Presbyterian might think of. So what I want us to do is simply look at some key passages, and then on your own, as you're doing your Bible reading, you'll come across other passages where the word baptism is. I want you to learn to slow down when you see that word, and just take note what is being said and what is happening, and I think a lot of issues and disagreements will go away. Now, remember what we learned last week, because it bears witness to today. There are groups within the Christian church, and I mean that in the broad sense of the word, where baptism is seen as a sacrament, which is simply a word that says that God conveys or gives grace through this act whether it be the Lord's Supper or baptism. In the Catholic Church, they have multiple sacraments. Um, and all of these are ways in which you go and you receive grace that will help you in your Christian walk or your salvation even. And so the Roman Catholic Church would say that the rite of baptism all by itself saves an individual. You become a child of God. The Lutherans take that back a step And they will say that through the waters of baptism, that the grace of faith is given to the infant. And now they are, now here's the key thing. They are now united with Jesus Christ. The Anglican and Episcopalian groups will say very similar things. The Methodists see it as how you become part of the body of Christ. So through the waters of baptism, you now are united with the church. This is very important, and you'll see it in just a bit. Understand that what they're saying is that the waters of baptism somehow transfer you from one entity and locale and reality into another one. Salvation into the body of Christ, into the church, in, in, uh, that you're saved in, in many cases. 
The covenant view, which is through the Presbyterians and the Reformed, views that baptism in the New Testament is simply a sign like circumcision was for the Old Testament. That's a sign that the person now, an infant, is now part of the covenant community of believers. Again, it's important that you understand what I mean by that. That means that when you're baptized, you now are part of the visible church, that through the rite of baptism, you're transferred and you're now seen as part of God's people. And they will treat you as if you are part of God's people, meaning a Christian, until you prove otherwise. So they would never say that, okay, we baptized you, and now at some point you need to come and make a profession of faith. They will actually treat you as if you have made that profession because you've been baptized, and now they'll just train you up in the Christian faith. So they say that the baptism does not save, but at the same time they will say that they will treat you as if you are saved, and so it can be a bit confusing as you talk to them. But what I want you to understand, and in both of those situations, in one way or another, baptism puts you into the church, the body of Christ. And the reason is because how these various groups understand what the Bible is doing when it says baptism, which is why we're going to spend some time today talking about that word. So what I want you to see today is that the Bible actually uses five different meanings or gives five different meanings to the word baptism in the New Testament. And so the goal is to see that much of the confusion and disagreements that we have arises out of the confusing of these categories, that when we're talking about baptism over here, we treat it as if it's the same thing as over here, but they're actually two separate categories, and we need to keep them separate or we have confusion. Now, I don't expect that this will somehow turn back hundreds of years of, of confusion and disagreement, but it is important for the people of Missio Dei to understand what they believe and why they believe. Certainly, as you go out and you share your faith with others, and baptism will most certainly become an issue. So, let's, with that in mind, just jump right in. Go to Mark chapter 10. And I want you to see that the first use of baptism that we'll talk about is the baptism of what I'll just call it suffering. It's a baptism of suffering. In Mark chapter 10, 38 and 39. I had a man um, tell me the other week that his little brother or a sibling had died in infancy, and they had not baptized him, and that he had a Lutheran pastor explain to him that he was in hell because the child had not been baptized. So when I say that these things matter, I mean they matter. This is what is taught and told by in various ways and means, and so it's important that we understand these things. So in Mark chapter 10, we have one way that the Bible uses the word baptism. In verses 38 and 39, he said, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. 
And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Now, what's going on, and I'm not giving you the full context, so let me briefly do that here, is that we have two men, James and John, the sons of thunder. They're disciples of Christ. Uh, They have come to him, and in other passages in the other Gospels, we find out that the mother is involved in all of this too. And they know that he is the king and that he's going to have his kingdom, and they want to be given the favored seats. They want to be seated right next to him. And so that's what they're asking. Hey, can we have this seat? And he, instead of saying yes or no, he does that after he he basically rebukes them. He challenges them. Are they able to go through the baptism that he is facing himself? Now, Jesus has already been baptized by John. If you know the life of Jesus and his chronology, he's not talking about water baptism. He's actually talking about a metaphorical use of baptism, which is that of suffering. So James and John, they want to be seated next to him. Um, they want to be in the kingdom. And his answer is very simple. You're go- he is going to enter his kingdom through the cross. He is going to enter into his glory through suffering upon that cross. The cup is simply another metaphor here of drinking fully the wrath of God. If you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, I can't say the word today, Gethsemane, uh, that, you'll have to deal with that. He says, if you're willing to let this cup pass. What is the cup? It's the cup of God's wrath. The wrath that was for you and for I because of our sin, that wrath that was going to be upon us for all eternity, that infinite level of wrath that God was going to put upon us justly because we are sinners, that Christ drank for us. In the same sense that the cup, the baptism is another metaphor of the fact that he would be fully engulfed or immersed into the fullness of death, that he would be separated in some way or another from his father, where he would cry out, why have you forsaken me? So he became the sin bearer of his people, and he is to descend then into the fullness of that death. And that is the baptism of which he is talking about. And he says, are you ready to do that? And of course, they, like you and I, are full of themselves. And they say, yes, we are. And he says, well, actually, you're going to drink that cup and you're going to be baptized like I will be baptized. They will suffer. They will be killed for their faith. It is that reality because they are his disciples. In fact, we actually have the record of James when he was killed in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 12, he was killed by King Herod Agrippa's orders. He was a man who wanted to sit on a throne, but he was given a sword to his neck. He wanted to follow Jesus, but he did not know that that meant that he would follow him into the grave. We don't have an actual record of John's death, but we know that he too died. The last time we ever hear of John is in Acts chapter 8 with Peter, And what's interesting is after that point, he is never again mentioned in the book of Acts. He just goes away. It's very quite quite likely he was caught up with other believers and executed. And one who who likely participated in voting for his death, this may surprise you, was Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul. 
Paul was very busy about gathering up the disciples and the leaders of this new thing called the church, the way, and having them put on trial and then voting for their execution. Many of them were imprisoned and actually killed because Paul, at that point named Saul, voted that way. And so both James and John entered into that baptism, but it was a baptism of suffering. And this is the first way that baptism is used. It's speaking of fully experiencing, being immersed into the reality of suffering, ultimately to the point of death. It is a suffering because you follow Christ. So it's not just because you live life. It's because you identify with Christ. And then eventually it will engulf you if the Lord is pleased. And it becomes all-encompassing and there is no escape except simply to submit to it and enter into eternity through it. So that's the first one, the baptism of suffering. The second is in chapter 3, verse 11 of Matthew. And you might as well uh, keep your finger there because we'll go back in a bit. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. And this is called the baptism of John the Baptist. The baptism of John the Baptist, or just the baptism of John. So in chapter 3, verse 11, John the Baptist is talking here, and he says, As for me, I baptize you with water. For what purpose? For repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. And he, this is speaking of Jesus Christ, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So what we actually have in this passage, which is why we'll return, is three different uses of the word baptism. All in one verse, the word baptism is used in three different ways, and you need to be able to follow those. So here we have John's baptism. It's a unique baptism that was performed, of course, by John and his disciples. Now notice in verse 3, that um, going back to verse 3, for this is the one... This is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Referring out of Isaiah, he is talking about the fact that there was one that has been prophesied, a prophet would come, who would prepare the way of the coming Christ, or the Old Testament way of saying that would be the Messiah. And so John was calling the people who were coming out to hear him to repent and to prepare themselves for the coming of the Messiah. He was proclaiming, and you remember my series on kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God was at hand, which simply means it was near. Why? Because the king was coming. And so the only proper response for them was to repent. Now, how do you know if you've been, how do you know if you've repented? How do you know if you've turned back to the coming Messiah? Well, it was through baptism. And so what it says in verse six is that they were being what? Baptized by him in the Jordan River. How? As they confessed their sins. So this mass of people started hearing that after 400 years of silence, a prophet was there. And he was proclaiming that the Messiah was coming. 
and they were flocking to hear him. And as he preached to them, they would hear, they became convicted. They confessed their sins as Israelites. They knew they had been a disobedient people. And then they were going into the river and they were being baptized by him or some of his disciples. Now, this was not simply a sprinkling of water then. They would enter into the water and they would be immersed because this was a picture of what they were doing. They were fully identifying themselves with the coming of the Messiah. And what's happening here is that he is calling the people to come back. I think that what you're seeing today in America, just as an aside, is simply that. What you see today is simply the beginning, just the beginning of the sifting and the winnowing of the church of Jesus Christ in America. For how many decades have we had tolerated weak doctrine and weak, a weak gospel and a vague one that does not call anyone to deny himself and to take up his cross and to follow Jesus Christ? How many times have we nodded because we don't expect to suffer it, that through many tribulations we shall enter the kingdom of God? And we all nod because... Quite frankly, we don't think that we will have to do it. The day is here, though, beloved. And the day is coming where more and more you will watch people who will just simply walk away. They are content not to come and to gather to hear the word of God because they, they frankly, don't need the word of God. They are not belonging to the people of God. They do not love the God of the word. And so as the pressures are being brought forth harder and harder and harder, more and more people are moving further and further away from the word of God and more importantly from Jesus Christ himself. But what's interesting is as that occurs, you will also see that some who have long since walked away will come back. And this is simply the wonderful doctrine of the perseverance of the saints where Jesus Christ said in John chapter 11 that all that the Father gives to me shall come to me and I will not lose one. There are some who have wandered, some who you have perhaps prayed for for many years and you wish, oh, would you return? And you will see them to return as the time of testing comes Just like John the Baptist is now in the wilderness and he's calling the people, repent, confess your sins, come out here. And some flocked to him. Their hearts were all of a sudden awakened and broken and they wanted. This is the reality of how God works and it is a very mysterious work. So when you take the points of verse 3 where he's calling them to repent and verse 6 where he is baptizing them, What we see is John is doing what he was called to do. He's preparing the people to see and receive their Messiah. That's why in Mark chapter 1 verse 4, it says that John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's it's a baptism to show that you acknowledge that you are a sinner, that you were a rebellious people, that you were far from your Messiah, and that you wanted to come back. It was a simple way to signify what had already occurred. I am a sinner, and I need forgiveness. In fact, in the book of Luke, Matt Miller, turn here, if you would, to Luke chapter 7. In fact, he's preaching on the very next verses. uh, Well, he's done now. But uh, today, <clears throat> in Luke 7, verses 29 and 30, <clears throat> it 
It says, when all the people and the tax gatherers heard this, they acknowledged God's justice. How? How do they acknowledge it? Having been baptized with the baptism of John. The way they acknowledged that God was justly condemning them and that he was calling them sinners and that they were guilty, the way they were recognizing that was they would willingly go into the water and be baptized by John who was calling them to repent. But notice in verse 30, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. They said, no thanks, we're not interested. Now remember that, and remember that the book of Acts is a book of transition. So go with me to Acts 18, and then we'll go to chapter 19, and we'll just lightly touch on this. But I want you to keep in mind, we're still on the baptism of John. And in Acts, we have all these weird stories, and I don't know what to call them, but weird or strange stories, because it's a time of transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, from the people of Israel now to the people of God in the church. And so what's happening here is that you come across things like 18 verse 25, where this guy named Apollos is around, and he's a very eloquent preacher, He was very mighty in the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament. And it says in verse 25, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted though only with the baptism of John. And so Priscilla and Aquila pull him aside and they give him a fuller teaching. But here was a man who, this is one of the guys who went out into the wilderness. He heard John the Baptist preaching. He believed the word that the Messiah had come. He was a man who had clearly devoted himself to knowing the word of God, the Old Testament. He understood the promises of the coming Messiah. He just hadn't seen the Messiah. He hadn't heard the fullness of the gospel. And so he's out there preaching to everybody about the coming Jesus, not knowing that he had already come, but he had been baptized by John. And so now these two dear saints teach him the more excellent way as it's written, and he believes in Jesus. And then in chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, again, we uh, have Paul now, and and Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus And when they heard this, what happened? They were baptized in the name of Jesus. So what we have here is these two different baptisms. The one we practice, the water baptism, along with the baptism of John. So, so far, just stay with me. We've got the baptism. Sometimes it talks about suffering, that we must be immersed in the suffering for the name of Christ. Other times it's talking about this baptism that John did, And the next one is another really fun one about baptism. It's called the baptism of judgment. Now go back to Matthew uh, 3.11. The baptism of judgment. And I just want to point out the last couple words in the verse, if you're using the New American Standard. It says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The word fire is the point that I want you to see. The passage, again, is unique, as I said, because it actually speaks of three different types 
a baptism. So it uses the word three times with three different meanings attached to it. But what's interesting is not one of these is referring to the rite that we call baptism. So this baptism is a baptism of judgment or of wrath. It's the judgment of fire. Now notice the context. In in chapter uh, 3, verse 7, but when we, he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, this is John the Baptist, coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, he's using some really cool imagery here. What you have is, I don't know if you've ever been in, uh, around a wildfire, but in Southern California, they can erupt and they can be really, really destructive. And when they're moving, they begin to generate their own wind. And so they'll just start going as crazy because they have these eucalyptus trees that are full of oil. And, and maybe 100, 200, 300 feet in front of the flames, you'll see these trees and they'll start to boil. And all of a sudden, they'll just explode because of the intensity of the heat. And as this thing is just marching across, what happens is all of the animals in that area are fleeing it. And they're just crazed. They're just all running in the same direction. They don't care if normally they're prey or, or they would be the ones who would be hunting the prey. They're all just trying to escape this fire. That's the imagery that John is talking about. He calls these Pharisees snakes. And he's like, what is it that's making you run? Why are you out here? Because the reality of it is, is that John has been preaching fire. He has been preaching judgment. He is telling the people that the Messiah is coming and he is going to judge. And the people are running out to him, fleeing the judgment and wanting to be baptized. But among them are the Pharisees and he knows that they're not out there because they're afraid. So what is it that makes these religious hypocrites come to him? It's it's not the fear of judgment. It's not the fear of wrath. He knew what they were doing was simply to check things out and find out what's, who's going out there and who's being led astray by this weird prophet who they know isn't a prophet, and they're there to judge. But they are not wanting the Messiah. You can imagine him there, and as he sees the Pharisees start to arrive, and he points out to them and he invites them into the water, will you be baptized for repentance of your sins? Will you confess your sins for the coming of the Messiah? And they all stand there and they cross their arms and they shake their head and they're like, no, we're not here for that. We're too good for that. And then all of a sudden, he just points his finger. He says, you are a brood of viper. Why are you out here then? Why are you fleeing? Because you're not fleeing the wrath that's to come. They won't repent. And so then in verse 9, he anticipates what they're really thinking. He's unimpressed. He says, and oh, by the way, don't suppose that you can say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. So what does he say instead in verses 10 and 11? The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit or good fruit is cut down and thrown into what? The fire. Now that fire, keep that in mind. And as for me... I baptize you with water for repentance, 
For he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And all he's doing is he's saying, look, one way or the other, you're going to enjoy a baptism. You're going to either be baptized with the Spirit or you're going to be baptized with fire. But beloved, you will be baptized. And I can say the same thing to every one of you and all of your loved ones. You will be baptized. There is no escaping the Lord. There is no way that you will escape the day where he says that every tongue will confess him to be Lord, some to their joy and some to their horror. But all of you will be baptized. A baptism with the Holy Spirit or a baptism of judgment. This is the reality. Now we come to the fourth use. Just stay right there in Matthew 3 because it's there. It's that baptism of the Spirit. Now, in all four of the gospel accounts, we have the story that we've already talked about where John the Baptist is out baptizing. After Jesus rose from the dead and he spent 40 days, remember what we learned in Acts 1, he spent 40 days with his disciples. It was the baptism of the Holy Spirit that he said was going to be the next big event. And so he said in Acts 1, verse 5, for John baptized with water, that's the one we just looked at, and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not with fire, just the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So from the beginning of his earthly ministry to the very end of his earthly ministry, Jesus talked about this event. And it did not occur until he actually ascended into heaven But this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we saw in Acts chapter 2 and that I spent quite a bit of time already explaining, so we won't have to do much here. But I want you to go to a key passage in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 12, verse 4. Now, I want you to remember that a lot of people say that when you put people in the water of baptism, whether they sprinkle, they dunk, they pour, or, or whatever means they use, they say that when you do that, you are now in the church. And I want you to see that that's not the case, but in fact, it's a different kind of baptism that puts you in the body of Christ. It's the spirit baptism. So in chapter 12, verses 4 through 13, and we'll, uh, the key is in verse 13, he says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, variety of ministries, the same Lord. There are a variety of, uh, varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. So you can see the emphasis is upon the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to the other the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to to another the effecting of miracles, to another prophecy, and another the distinguishing of spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues or languages, and to another the interpretation of tongues." But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. For even as the body is one, yet 
has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Now let's stop there for a quick second. So he's emphasizing, look, you all have gifts. They're different gifts, and not one is better than the other, and so stop hating each other and trying to pretend you have gifts that you don't have gifts. He's like, every person who is in the body of Christ has a gift, and it came by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who gave it. And he says, so you need to see that all of you are recipients of the kindness and the mercy of the Spirit in your giftedness. But he then says, okay, so all of your individuals have these gifts, but you all belong to one body. That's the thing you want to see in verse 12. We're all members of the body, and the body is, belongs to who? It's Jesus Christ. He is the head, and the church is his body. So here's the question. How do you get in that body? How do you get in the body of Jesus Christ? How do you become have, come into union with Jesus Christ? Verse 13, for by or with one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, do you remember what John the Baptist said? That I baptize you with water, for repentance. But there is one, who's that one? Jesus, who is coming, who will baptize you with who? The Holy Spirit. So who is baptizing you into the body of Jesus Christ here in verse 13? Jesus. No, the Spirit is the water. The Spirit is, that's okay. The Spirit is, and this is where the confusion is. The Spirit is like, picture our tub, our horse trough that we baptize you in, right? The, 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 the water is an image of the Spirit, and when the person baptizes you, they're an image in a sense or a symbol of what Christ has done, that what Christ does is he takes each person who believes and he immerses them in the Spirit, and at that moment, they instantly become part of the body of Jesus Christ, the true church. And upon that moment, they also each are given spiritual gifts. So it has nothing to do here about water baptism. It's talking about a baptism with the Holy Spirit where he is the element and Christ is the one baptizing him or baptizing you into it. It's not something you feel. It's not something that manifests itself with some ecstatic speech or something like that. It's just simply a reality that now we have been transferred from one reality to another. We are now in Jesus Christ. So that is what it means. It's talking about that in one spirit. So the spirit, again, is the element in which they are baptized, not water, but the Spirit. So this is very important. Paul is teaching then that baptism in the Spirit occurs at conversion. This baptism is not external, but internal or a spiritual one, if you wish. And it has no connection with water itself. It's connecting the person to the true universal church or the body of Jesus Christ. Now, why am I making a big deal? If you follow what I say at this point, then a lot of the problems related to baptism goes away. Remember, all of those views, the 
sacramental view, the covenantal view, in one way or another, they're saying that the water of baptism connects you to Jesus Christ. But that's not the case. The water does nothing but get you wet. What connects you to Jesus Christ is the Holy Spirit. That Jesus baptizes you with the Spirit. You're now immersed. He is in you and you are in him. And that puts you in his church. And so these passages in the Bible that talk about baptism and it's talking about your union with Christ, they're not talking about water baptism. They're talking about spirit baptism. So let's look at some very quickly. In Romans 6, Romans 6, I won't read the whole thing in Romans 6, 1 through 11. I'll just read the key parts. Paul then is dealing with some people who are going to think that because grace abounds over my sin, then I can sin all I want because grace is going to always overcome it. And he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, see that word? What has that baptism done though? It's baptized us where? Say it. Into Christ. So we're not talking about water baptism. What puts you in Christ? The spirit baptism. So, through baptism into death, oh, I'm sorry, baptized into Christ, we have been baptized now into his death, and therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in the newness of life. All I'm saying here is that this is one of the most common passages the other groups will take you to it to say, see, when you're baptized, then you're baptized in his death. And when you are raised, you're resurrected to life. So the Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, the Episcopalian, the Methodist, in one way or another, that's what they're saying is happening when the water hits you. When the water hits you, either it, the water all by itself does it, that's the Catholic Church, or God then gives you faith and now you believe as a little baby and you're now in Christ. Another passage that people do uh, in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3.27. For time's sake, I'll start reading quite quickly. So, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. He's again not talking about water baptism. He's talking about the baptism with the Spirit. All of us were baptized into Christ, and therefore we are clothed with Christ. And what we really do is we, we, I don't think we mean to, but we denigrate what Christ has done with the Spirit when we turn it into just simply a water baptism, that something mystical has happened. One more passage in Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2. Eleven and twelve, and in Christ, in Him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So it's it's not a physical thing; 
in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So what is he talking about? Verse 12, having been buried with him, where? In baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Again, which baptism is he talking about? The water baptism or one that unites you with Christ? Here, again, he's emphasizing a unity with Jesus Christ, and therefore it's simply the spirit baptism. So finally, now we can briefly mention the one we practice, water baptism. We've eliminated the vast majority, actually, of the verses that reference baptism because they're not talking about this baptism. So now we come to what is nothing more than a symbol, an important symbol, but a symbol nonetheless of what has already occurred. Now remember, water baptism by many is seen to do something spiritual. As good Baptists, we would say, no, the doing has already happened. We are already saved. We have made a profession. That's why we say to you, if you want to join the church, you must have been baptized. We will not let you join the church until you have been baptized as a professing believer. We will not accept something that occurred at your infancy because you were not able to first profess Christ. The reality is baptism does nothing but get you wet, but it is a symbol and a picture of what has already occurred in Jesus Christ. What is key with all of these positions is that water baptism is a way, in one way or another, to come into the union with Jesus Christ or to be in Christ. So you have passages like Romans 6.11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore if anyone is where? In Christ, he's a new creature. These are passages that when you think that baptism puts you in Christ, then you misuse these passages. You now take your little precious child and you take him to the font and the preacher utters the gospel and proclaims that the word of the gospel sprinkles the child and you now think that there is no condemnation for him because he is now where? In Christ. And you think that he has now been baptized into the death of Christ in Christ, because he got wet. And you think that he is now a new creature and not belonging to the old. That is why it's so important, and that's why it matters. It affects what you say to your child. I'm going to interview a child after service, and I want to hear his profession of faith. I don't want to know what happened when he was infant. I want to know what does he believe What does he believe? And only when he is able to say, I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection for my salvation, the death, burial, and resurrection of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that is a person I will with great joy baptize as a symbol of what's already occurred. Does that make sense? Just one passage. Oh, boy. Yeah, one passage, Ephesians 4, and then... Wrap it all up. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, great passage about unity. I'm somewhat, for some reason, in First Thessalonians. Let me get to the right book. 
Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, Paul says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called in all humility and gentleness with patience, showing forbearance with one another where in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Because there is one body and one spirit just as also you were called in one hope of your calling and one Lord and one faith and one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Notice in verses 3 and 4, there's this tight relationship with the Holy Spirit and unity. Why? Because we are now part of his body, the body of Christ, in verse 4. How? By the Spirit, also in verse 4. What brings us into unity, beloved, is not common interest, but the Spirit. That's why you are here today, why you are a very diverse group of people, but you're all here. Why? Because we all share in one body because of one Spirit. And then in verse 5, we have the idea of what's likely referencing water baptism, that we share that as well, this common reality that we were then baptized in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Beloved, when you read the New Testament, the water baptism is always seen as a result of hearing and believing. It never once, not once, is shown to be prior to hearing and believing the gospel. And that's why it's important to keep the spirit baptism and water baptism separate. You must do it. So I'm going to end this with just a quick quoting through the book of Acts of all these passages about baptism. In Acts 2.41, all who received the gospel were baptized. In Acts 8.12, all who believed the gospel were baptized, both male and female. In 8.36, the Ethiopian eunuch believes and then wants to be baptized and is baptized. In Acts 9.18, Paul, having already believed, is now baptized. In Acts 10, all who believed in the gospel when Peter preached were then baptized. In Acts 16.14, Lydia and her household all believed the gospel and were baptized. In Acts 16, verse 33, the jailer in Philippi and his household heard the gospel and then were baptized. They believed and then were baptized. In Acts 18.8, a Jew named Crispus and his household believed the gospel and were baptized. In Acts 19.4-5, through 5, Paul finds disciples of Jesus Christ who had not yet been baptized, and so he baptizes them. The point is very simple. The biblical record is to believe and then be baptized. Some people wonder why we don't do altar calls here. Just hang with me. I've had this question uh, raised over the past month about four times. Why don't we practice altar calls here? The reason is very simple. There's many, but we don't want you to ever place your faith in the fact that you walked down an aisle and prayed some prayer. We want your faith to rest in one place, Jesus Christ. And we have been, I've been doing this now for what? Almost a quarter of a century here, plus another six years back in LA. And not once have I ever done an altar call and not once has anyone not been able to come to faith. We don't do altar calls because they become something that becomes like an idol for you, and you put your faith in that act rather than in Jesus. The same problem happens often with baptism. Why do you think you're going to heaven? 
I've been baptized. In fact, Kim and I lived on a ranch in Southern California, and, and a man told me, because I challenged him, he, he owned the land and we worked on it, and he challenged, or I challenged him as to whether he was a Christian, because he wasn't, and he got spitting mad at me, and he wanted to show me his certificate of baptism and his Sunday school certificates. They were going to prove he was a Christian. Beloved, baptism will never save you. Faith in Christ saves you. Baptism is to show that that's where your faith rests. So that's what I want to ask you now, simply before we close. Have you? Have you placed your faith in Christ? And then, having been, having placed your faith in Christ, have you then been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? That's the command. Jesus says, go into all the nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. The call is to be baptized by water because you believe. So my question to you simply is, do you believe? Let's pray. So, Father, I do ask that you would grant us that, that you would grant us a sober mind to not cling to that which cannot save, but simply to cling to Jesus Christ. Your mercies are incredible. Your patience with us is overwhelming at times. You bless us even as we sometimes curse you. I pray, Father, that you would even now draw men and women, young and old alike, to you, that we would have the joy as we gather together as in the celebration service to hear the many testimonies of men and women who simply obey, that they're not resting in something that was done for them for their salvation, but they're resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And because of that, they desire to give public testimony. Help us to understand this, Lord. Help us as we talk to friends and family who would strongly disagree with us so that we might be a word of grace and encouragement to them, but also that we would not bend, that we would not play loose with your word. We thank you, Father, for your patience with us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the spirit that grants us life. In your son's name, amen. And now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen.